obviously gone last week for Easter, and um, <clears throat> we were down in Tampa visiting our son who we hadn't seen in, what, three months? A couple, couple months for sure. Um, he's doing great down there, uh, involved in the, in the church, in Living Faith Tampa. So it was a blessing to be there in their new building. Uh, it was a blessing to see, uh, spend some time with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that we hadn't, hadn't got to spend time with uh, recently as well. So thank you for the prayers. Uh, I think a couple of folks said this morning it was good to see me. I, I assume you meant Michelle. It was good to see Michelle. Um, we're mistaken like that sometimes. Um, but it's good to be back. It's good to see you all. And, um, you know, it is amazing how one, even just Sunday, uh, I guess we weren't here Tuesday because we had a track meet too, but a, a Sunday and a Tuesday, it feels like you're just super disconnected all of a sudden. So I apologize uh, for that. Just if, if there's any needs, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'll do my best. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, bend over backwards to help you and minister to you however I can. So excited about the, the message today. Uh, it is the, uh, you know, uh, appreciate Brian uh, teaching uh, last week. We will continue and do our three message, at least three message series back in the book of Exodus. We've made it all the way to Exodus 17, the second half, if you will, of that chapter. This is a very well-known passage for a lot of Bible believers, a lot of people familiar with Scripture. This is the passage where... Joshua is fighting the Amalekites, and Moses has to hold up his um, the staff as hands. And when he wearies and lets them down, then Amalek wins. And when they're up, you know Joshua and the children of Israel win, and Aaron and Hur come uh, stand beside. and And I have I've seen this message or seen this passage rather preached a couple of different ways. Uh, but one of them is, and, and I've done this myself. I, uh, unashamedly stole it, had someone sit up, uh, at the front and hold up, uh, just like a broomstick or some reasonable amount of weight, uh, and just have them hold it up the whole time the message is going. Uh, and inevitably, uh, that starts to falter and then call someone out to support them. Uh, and even when that starts to falter, eventually call you know others up to support. And it's a beautiful picture. And uh, if I really felt led of the Lord, I would have gone there again. But I felt like the Lord was, I really believe what the Lord uh, want, wants me to share today is, is a little bit different than that. So uh, let's, look at our, let's look at our passage in the first, the situation. Again, we're following our pattern, the situation, the struggle, the victory. The situation is verse 8 um, <clears throat> in Exodus 17 and verse 8. Then, uh, Amalek, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So, um, this is kind of the first time, at least, a Amalek is, is doing something uh, specific. So, I, I really wanted to say, I wanted to take a minute here and, and, and talk about who is Amalek, right? Who are these people? What is this challenge? So, in Genesis 36, I believe it's on your, on your page, 36, 9 through 12, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in Mount Seir. So, Esau is over the Edomites. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Bethshemath, uh, or Bashemath, 
the wife of Esau, and the sons of Eliphaz were um, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Getam, and Kenaz. And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. And these were the sons of Ada, uh, Esau's wife. So because there's a lot of words there, and if you weren't tracking, I took a few minutes and created this. Um, you, I don't have. Sometimes I put these things on your on your handout. This isn't super important for the for the point today. But you know, Esau has uh, at least two two sons: Eliphaz by Ada, one wife, and Reuel by uh, Bashmath, and you know, she's a, a, another wife. So. So we're going to focus on Eliphaz's kind of side of the family tree, if you will. And he has five kids by a wife that is not named. <clears throat> but he also has Amalek by this concubine, Timnah. Okay, so, she, so specifically called out as a concubine. I do think it's kind of interesting. The wife's name isn't mentioned, but uh, at least uh, in this passage, I, don't, I didn't find it. So Amalek's mother is Timnah. Now, we do see in another passage, I think it's later in Genesis 36, maybe down 16, 14, 16 range, it references that these guys, these five brothers, if you will, uh, half brother with Amalek, four brother or uh, five brothers and one half brother. They are dukes. They are called out as dukes. So they have more than just a position. They have a responsibility. They actually lead their families. They lead similar to the tribes of Israel that we've seen in Genesis that we know about. Right, the sons of Israel, similar to that. These uh, six men are considered dukes, and they themselves have groups of people under them, right? So they're, they intermarry, they have folks that join them, and they themselves represent. They're not nations, but they're people groups. And this, um, and uh, <clears throat> sorry, these Am uh, Am Amalekites um, are going to attack the children of Israel, okay? So another important... Um, I guess family tree is going back up and I've obviously removed a lot of the names. Obviously we have Jacob and Esau that are brothers. Jacob has, or Israel has 12 sons. Esau has Eliphaz and Reuel and subsequently Amalek, right? So I've just removed him so we can see that we've got cousins fighting each other, okay? Not in the sense that they are cousins in that modern day because remember, all the generations, the few hundred years have happened when it, uh, it, the children of Israel have been in Egypt, right, for, for a few hundred years. Now, uh, the children of Israel are going to start coming into the land. Well, the Amalekites, the children of Amalek, is, is bothered by that, and they're going to attack the children of Israel. But the, the point here is they're kin, okay, these people groups are kin. And that's just interesting to me. This is so so on one side it's hard to wrap my brain around. I mean, I like my cousins. I can't imagine that my descendants and my cousins' descendants would actually fight and kill each other. Okay? I but on on another hand, I can I can I can wrap my head around the fact that when I see a Brit walk down the street, 
I don't pull out a musket and shoot them like we did in the Revolutionary War, right? So it's been a couple hundred years, and we're not fighting anymore, right? So there was a period of time we were fighting, then there wasn't a period of time, and then there was again, I guess, in the War of 1812, but then we aren't fighting again. So, but my point is, like, things change over hundreds of years. But we can't forget the fact that these folks share a lineage. These are not some far-flung, you know, quote, Gentiles from another part of the world, if you will. These are, are folks that, in theory, should have gotten along, should have been able to have gotten along, But we see in verse 8, and it's a really important point, look at the wording. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. The attack came from Amalek. They started it. They, in the infamous words of John J. Rambo, drew first blood. Some of you got that. Okay. All right. So they started it. Okay. Now, we're going to see how God deals with it. What, John? What? Is that the Rambo? John J. Rambo, yeah. I didn't know he had a first name. Well, of course. That's, he's a real person. <laughs> John J. Rambo. You, you should come over and we should watch First Blood. So, Brian Dennehy was the guy that drew First Blood. It was unnecessary. All right, so... But th- thank you for the clarification. So we see that this really is offspring of, of, of one person, one people group that are, are, have been split. And now they're actually fighting. So who is Amalek? Well, or still, and when he looked at, so now all the way at Numbers 24, verse 20, so later. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations. So it's just kind of interesting that Amalek, now moving back in time from this point at which Amalek attacked Israel, right? So farther, closer to the time when Amalek himself was alive, right? Not hundreds of years later, which is our story. But back when he was alive, he was at least not just a duke, but had some pretty significant measure of influence. He was the first of the nations. My, my assumption here is that Amalek was quite the kind of the, the Saul-type king, right? People rallied around him. He had the uh, cult of personality, the cult of personality. Yeah, okay, thank you. Again, some of you are are with me. So he had the ability to draw men up to him, people to follow him to a point where they were it was deemed a nation, right? Now, we can't necessarily look on a map and outline the borders of Amalek, right? That's not the the point here, but the point is that Amalek had huge influence. So why was Amalek this kin, an enemy. Why was he an enemy? Now, we, so this, there's two perspectives here. There's a perspective right at this time that we're reading in Exodus 17 that Amalek has started this battle. Okay? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to put some postulates, some hypotheses out relative to that in a, in a few minutes. 
But what we'll see in the references here is actually later looking back, okay, at how serious this attack from Amalek is. It's very serious. Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, in verse 17. So in Deuteronomy 25, 17, God is challenging the people to remember how Amalek attacked them. Remember what he did. Now, the implication here was that when you were come forth out of Egypt, they were still a fledgling people, so to speak. They were moving. They didn't have forts and and fortresses. Matter of fact, there's even some discussion and debate about how armed they were at this point. It wasn't just a few weeks ago, not long passage-wise, that God redirected them from one direction to another because they weren't ready to fight. They were, from a militaristic perspective, an unprepared people. Okay? So, again, I'm just referencing verse 8 here. Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. They came from their home and attacked Israel unprovoked. Now, in Deuteronomy 25, 18, the next verse, how he met thee, by the way, and this is the part that's really hard for me to wrap my brain around, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. So, to think of the fact that you've got a couple, probably at least a million people, maybe even more moving, and you have folks of all generations, you have elderly, you have disabled people, you have pregnant, you have women that are nursing, dealing with young children, even the children potentially who were slower, potentially those with themselves having some measure of disability, they are slaughtered. This is serious business. Amalek chooses the weakest, comes behind them, the folks that were unable to keep up, that would catch up by the end of the day, and he kills those. This this is despicable. This is not coming up to another army, mano y mano or whatever, and, and, you know, doing like the slap boxing, right? Is that what they're calling it? Not slap fighting? I don't know. Is that like a thing now? What it, no, no, like they're just stand there and they slap each other and they take turns. I don't know. Is it, like, it's a thing, right? It's not like that. It's like the one guy slaps the other and then the other guy goes over and punches the guy's kid or something. Like, it's not, it's not the same. Or, or maybe one guy slaps and the other guy kicks somewhere more sensitive or something like it's not the same Amalek is despicable he literally his people this people group is is doing exactly what Satan does exactly what Satan does he always finds the feeble sometimes it's feeble of mind feeble of faith feeble of strength and he attacks them From the backside, a blind spot. And he kills him. And God calls it out. He says, don't forget how he met thee by the way. You were moving and he smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. And when thou wast faint and weird. Like when you're traveling. And he feared not God. 
So in Romans chapter 9, you may, have, you may be familiar with this. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I t- hated. So Romans, when Paul pins that, he's referencing Malachi <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, obviously, there's a component of this that is Esau didn't think enough of his birthright to retain it and traded it for porridge or some soup or chili. I've heard different things, right? So there is definitely a component of that. But don't forget, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Amalek, and therefore Esau, is responsible for killing innocent women and children and the elderly. Those who were, who were, who were weak, who were feeble, who were unable to keep up in, the, in this, that day's journey. That is a very, very serious and when people are like, this echoes to predestination and that's sort of, well, it echoes to the fact that Esau and his generations killed people when it wasn't necessary. And he like murdered innocent people. Like, yeah, I, I can understand why God's not happy with that. I can understand why he might say, I've loved Jacob and Esau have I hated. This actually goes back and is a parallel to the situation with Cain and Abel, Right? So both brought offerings. Cain's offering was deemed inappropriate, right? Because it was the work of his hands. And do you remember what God said to him? If thou doest well, you'll be accepted. Bring me the right offering and we're good. But Cain says, no, I'm going to kill as a result. And he rises up and and slays, slays his brother. Amalek, the descendants of Esau, Amalek specifically a descendant by a concubine, chooses a horrific act of violence against God. The exact same way Cain does. It's serious business. So victory principle number one. You might be surprised where the attacks come from. And there's kind of a twofold play here on the words. They might come from the back, the hindmost, the most feeble, the area you feel the weakest in. That might be where the attack, you know, hits. But it also might be from your family, your kin, people you wouldn't expect it to be from. Satan uses those folks to poke you right in the most sensitive part of your of your being, of your spiritual walk. And it hurts. And when that happens to me, I am not too proud to admit that I want to, like, like I, my blood pressure rises. I'm sure I get red. Michelle says I have this vein. I think it's right, right here that pops out. If you've, if you've all seen the vein pop out, that's not good news. When I get mad, I have a vein. It, and then I turn green and I rip all my clothes off. And I smash, Right? So that's my tendency, but what we're going to see here is that's exactly opposite of what God wants the response to be, okay, which is why I'm still learning. Surprise, surprise, I'm not perfect, right? I don't know why I sound like Pee Wee Herman when I said that, (laughs) but 
I'm not. I'm not perfect. I bat- this is actually one of my biggest weaknesses. And I know that Satan pokes me to elicit this very response out of me from time to time. So just be careful. The area... So, so, so if you were going to attack a castle... So let's, let's get in our time machine, go back to medieval days. If you were going to attack a castle, you don't walk up like, like uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and start whacking your sword on the rocks, right? That's not, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to get killed. They're going to dump, I don't know, boulders or hot lava or something on there, hot oil or something. They're going to kill you, right? You've got to figure out the weakness and attack that. That's what Satan does in your life. The areas you're the weakest... The areas where you're the, the most feeble are exposed. Okay, those are your exposure areas and you need to do what you can to protect them. Okay, do what you can to protect them. That's why the fellowship, the knit together with the women is important because some of those very issues that are going to be addressed are some of women's different women, different, different situations, but some of women's biggest weaknesses. Let's address them. Let's build up. Let's strengthen ourselves in those areas. Same with men. We have to challenge ourselves in those areas to figure out our weaknesses and build up our strength. So the struggle, so that's, that's the situation. The struggle is interesting. So Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out men, and go out and fight with Amalek for t- uh, tomorrow. So, so, so Mitch Dobson is there like, okay, that's on. We're going to fight. Okay. That's how I would probably respond. I, now, unfortunately, I don't do this other part. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So jo- Joshua did as Moses said in him and he fought with Amalek and Moses and Aaron, her went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. It's the first part of verse 12. So there's a choice. So you've got a a choice and a challenge here in the struggle. The choice of who is going to go out to fight. Not everybody's going to go. Moses says, choose out men to go out and fight. Okay. Now, this may seem like a duh. Like, wow, Mitch, you're super intelligent. Like, they're not going to send the feeble and the weak out to fight. But there is a a spiritual principle. The stronger in an area go fight the battle on behalf of the weak who are unable. And this is the part where the body of Christ, whether it's in these four walls, this campus. It's kind of weird to think we have a campus because we have that building, this building and another building. But I guess by definition we do. This, group, this local assembly, or even the broader assembly of believers, family, loved ones who are in other local assemblies, this is where we fight for each other on behalf of each other. Because my weakness might be your strength. And I would like to think your weakness is my strength, if you will, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this together. Okay? Now, it's a simple principle. They're not going to send out the weak to fight. They're going to send out the men that can fight. I get it. Okay? But notice, in, in Numbers 31, uh, 3 through 4, Moses spake unto the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves unto the war, and let them go against the Midianites. 
and avenge the Lord of Midian, uh, avenge the Lord of Midian. Of every tribe, a thousand throughout all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to war. So 12,000 guys were going to go fight. Now, some of you remember Nathan Bennett, who was here for uh, uh, him and his wife, Heather, were here for a season, sat up in this area. Um, Nathan and I have remained in contact with, a, with each other since this is being recorded. I want to be mindful of that and not say too much. But we have a, he sent me a secure app that we can, can message. And he shared with me some stuff that went on this week. Uh, and it's just kind of interesting. Like, I'm really glad there are men and not it, like don't, no conspiracy, like just some major training and stuff that was going on. So, um, I'm glad there are men and women who feel the call to soldier. Like, I'm not sure I'm soldier material. You know? Like, if Tom Cruise is yelling at me on the stand, I would probably fold up and cry. I'm not going to be like, you want me on that wall! You need me on that wall! Like, that's not me. I'd be like, I'm sorry, what did I do, Tom? Right? Like, but there are men and women who are faithful to the nature that God has created them, their, 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 their character, their desire. And we saw it after 9-11. We saw it in other seasons of our, of our country's history. These people feel a, a welling up inside and they want to go fight for their country. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And just like that here, there are men who are going to go a thousand out of every tribe. It's actually the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing as people working in Kidtown. Be like, we don't kill the kids in Kidtown. That's true. You don't kill the kids in Kidtown. Okay? I would make it through a Sunday in Kidtown. And those are specific words. Like, I'd make it through. I am not called... To minister to kids in Kidtown. The kids would be safe. They probably would have too much sugar when I sent them home. Like, it, they, would, they would get some Bible, but I, I, like, I, that's not what I'm called to do. But there are individuals in this body, some of you in this room, who are called to do that. Right? It's the exact same thing. We have people with specific skill sets, with certain talents, with certain abilities, with certain inner drive to minister in different ways. Some of you can't stand the thought of working security. Some people can't think of anything other than working security. That's what makes the body of Christ a body. Right? Not everybody's the eye. Not everybody's the hearing. Not everybody's the smelling. Although, some people smell more than others. Okay. All right. So, not a newlywed. You've maybe seen this before. Deuteronomy 24, when, verse 5. When a man taketh a, a new wife, uh, that, that means like the first wife, not just, hey, I want a new wife. Uh, he shall go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. So, there is a reason for that. In part, it's to build the relationship. In part, it's I believe, to actually start the family process, right? But So some will be selected, but some are actually exempt, okay? Not a newlywed. Now, notice at the bottom, men who drew the sword are men of war. 
These are verses throughout the Old Testament and just a handful that I grabbed. In Judges 20, uh, there's several in verse 17. And the men of Israel beside Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men that drew the sword. These were men of war. In verse 25, and Benjamin went forth against them out of Gibeah, uh, uh, Gibeah the second day and destroyed down to the ground the children of Israel. Again, 18,000 men, all these drew the sword. Uh, you see it again in 25, all these drew the sword. In verse 46, th- uh, fought 20 and 5,000 men that drew the sword, all these were men of valor. And Joab gave up the sum of the number in in, uh, 2 Samuel 24, the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So it's growing as as the nation gets more stable. In 1 Chronicles 21.5, And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew the sword. And Judah was, uh, Judah was 403 score and 10,000 men that drew the sword. This is, it's growing. It's replicating through discipleship. People who have the ability to draw the sword and fight the battle on behalf of someone else. Don't miss it. It's very, it's a very clear pattern here. If there is a weakness in this body, there's one of two ways that it's going to be filled. Somebody that's in the body gets a call to fill it, to stand in that gap, or we need to get out and hit the streets more and get that person here and see them saved so we can disciple them so they can fill it. Okay? There is nothing that we have that the Lord can't, or there's no need that we have that the Lord can't fulfill through his people here, okay? Here or, or bring him to the table. So that was the choice of who was supposed to go, but there's a challenge. This is, I, I think, really cool, of heavy hands. Now, there's an irony of weariness here. When Moses becomes weary... Much like those who were the attacked, Amalek wins, right? Amalek attacked the weary and weak. And yet in battle, Moses, in battle in prayer, it's a, it's a clear picture of prayer. But when, when in, in that battle, when Moses becomes weak, it's only through the support of others that they can be victorious, The weakness is going to exist. Everyone faces it. Isaiah 40, 30. Maybe you've, you've, uh, uh, you know, seen this, right? The 40, 31 is a more common uh, verse. But even, even the youths, even the youths, or, and some of you are thinking, yes, Joe Pesci, even the youths, my cousin Minnie. Sorry. Okay. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Like, this is a problem we all face. Anybody that says they don't become weary is either deranged or a liar. Okay? They don't understand what the word weary means, or they're not being honest. We all, everyone is going to face weariness. <clears throat> 
And even well-doing can produce weariness. That's why there's a challenge in Galatians 6.9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. We need to strengthen ourselves. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Now that doesn't mean buck up, little camper. You know? I don't know why that was especially funny, but I guess it was. It doesn't mean... You know, I don't know why all the reference, movie references today, but it doesn't mean like an airplane when they grab, get a hold of yourself, and, psh, psh, and then the next person says, I'll take a turn, and get a hold of yourself, psh, psh, right? And it gets worse and worse and worse. It's not like that. It's that you have to face the weariness and deal with it. Or have someone else help you in that process. So our, our second victory principle today, serving the Lord is work. You're... Work demands energy. Energy creates weariness. It's going to happen. Serving the Lord is work. And you all have done a horrible job of listening quickly enough. So we're going to have to go quick. So, but Moses' hands were heavy. We saw that. They took a stone and put it under him. And he sat there on. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. The one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in, the book, in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Like, they picked the wrong they picked the wrong fight so there's going to be two s's and two j's there's support in spiritual battle support in, Joshua needed Moses and Moses needed Aaron and her and you've probably heard it said that everyone should have a Paul in their life and a Timothy in their life someone who has discipled them is mentoring them who's challenging them to grow you should have some you should have a Paul in your life but you should also have a Timothy in your life that you're pouring into and, and pulling along as well. Okay? I think we're good with that. But everyone should be a Joshua in the battle, a Moses lifting up those in the battle, and an Aaron and her supporting those who support the people in the battle. And that's going to be different in every one of your circumstances. So when someone says... My son's going through significant tests, significant medical. Okay, so that person is in the battle. Tari, T-A-R-R-E-Y, right? Tari's in, in a spiritual battle. Health issue with her son. Who are the Moses in this situation? I would say anyone who has committed that to prayer. When she has shared that here, Michelle has sent that out. If you've committed that to prayer, if you've asked God to intervene on behalf of her and her son, then you are supporting in prayer. Okay? And I'm going to pick on Michelle because I know Michelle has prayed for that situation. So Michelle is like Moses. 
And I'm just going to use me as an example, not that I haven't prayed for Tari and her son, but I'm supporting Michelle in that. There's different things that I needed to do in the environment to make sure she had the opportunity to do that. So, I think each of you have situations you know that you're in the middle of the battle. Some of them were shared and written on this exact board. You're in the middle of the battle. And everybody else has the opportunity to support you, just like Moses supported the battle. And when we let down our spiritual, prayerful hands, we're weakening, arguably, the battle. And then there's others who support you all. Sometimes that's other people in other ministries that are supporting you, right? And other churches who are supporting you. Like, I think of Ben's sister. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know them. Ben is in the, and his family is in the battle. We're praying for him as a church. But there's others who, will, who don't know them, don't know, don't know Ben, don't know his family. They maybe feel bad. So yeah, they're praying, but they're supporting others to be able to pray in some way. This often looks like the pastor or elder or leader component here, honestly. But every one of us should be in every one of these situations or positions at, at different points. And honestly, you're probably in all of them at the same point on three different matters, right? This is, a, this is an opportunity for you to be in the battle, even when you're not in the battle. You could put missionaries, right, up here. There's a lot of different examples that you could put in, in place. So what's the state in the spiritual battle? The Lord could have intervened. We see the Lord intervene in all sorts of different ways in physical battles in the Old Testament. So he could have intervened, but he chose to allow the physical success on the battlefield to be tied to the spiritual success of prayer or Moses' hands, rod, being up. Do I think that I have the ability to move an almighty God and change the direction of all humanity by my prayers? No, but yes. Like, if I really ask according to his will, and if I really ask according to his plan, he's all too happy to answer my prayer, to my, answer my request. So yeah, it does take an alignment, but notice in uh, Psalm 56, 9, when I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, God is for me. I'm, I mean, I realize it's Old Testament, but it's a pretty straightforward principle. When I cry, then the enemies are going to turn back. Like, God will wait to turn the enemies. He will wait to destroy Pharaoh until the moment his people cry out to him. 1 Timothy 2.8 I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, but also without doubting with a trust that God's going to deliver. And we love quoting the second half of, of James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we often leave out the first half of the verse, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another that ye may be healed. Oh yeah, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So 
just like the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, had weakness and others had to come to rally, the way that practically looks today is if I am not willing to share with Brian or willing to share at the men's Bible study or willing to share with some of you my weaknesses, my faults, you can't lift me up in prayer properly. You can't go to battle for me. This is not, I've got a list of sin mile long and I need somebody to tell it to. No, this is, I struggle in these areas. Please lift me up. Please hold me accountable. It's a beautiful picture. And then the last, the last kind of point, there's two, two points technically, but a juxtaposition in spiritual battle. This is really interesting. Amalek was discomfited. I don't know if you saw that in the verse. Uh, it looks like uh, verse 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The word discomfited literally means to wear them down, to make them weary. It was a battle of attrition. It wasn't a battle like, like I, I can't, I know we've seen movies like 300 and different movies where all the, you know, uh, Braveheart, where all these guys come together and they, they're fighting and it's like guys seem like, seem like guys are dying just like this, right? Because that's what sells tickets to movies. But like, like they would fight for hours and hours and hours on end. I, I have trouble sometimes taking my trash to the end of my driveway. <laughs> I can't imagine fighting another dude for hours. And, and per se, I win against that said dude. I don't get the opportunity to sit down and go, there's another dude. It's a war of attrition. And I don't mean like a war like of resources, but like if you aren't prepared, if you, as they say, didn't bring your lunch that day, like you're going to lose. Joshua discomforted them. He literally wore them down. He wearied them, which I think is a great play on words here. And the exact same thing that would happen to them is what they were doing in their attack of the inferior weak. And of, of course, in Galatians 6, 7 through 9, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For what a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the, fle- of, the, of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us... Oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. Sowing and reaping is then tied to verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall win the battle if we faint not. And yes, I know I changed the words of Scripture. But we shall reap if we faint not. I think it's just really interesting that this is all about weariness. And the entity that wins is going to be the entity that has more spiritual stamina. That has more spiritual strength, not physical strength. And our last point, and then we'll wrap up. The Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, in spiritual battle, creates a memorial. And then this Nisi, the God Almighty, this Nisi is a standard or banner. And that's to see. Because there's going to be perpetual war. I don't remember, I should have, uh, oh, it's the 84th Regiment of the U.S. Colored Infantry. 
okay? This is their regimental flag. So what they would do is they would put the battles that they fought on their flags, the regimental flags. This is very common in the Civil War. They would actually record, they would sew uh, or in some way, shape, or form put the battles on the flags as a memorial, as a remembrance. And if I can pull up. Civil War soldiers placed great importance on the flags of their regiments. And men would sacrifice their lives defending a regimental flag to protect it from capture by the enemy. A great reverence for regimental flags is often reflected in accounts written during Civil War, from newspaper letter, or newspapers to letters written by soldiers to official regimental histories. It's obvious that flags carried enormous significance. The respect for the flag of a regiment was a, partly a matter of pride and morale, but it also had a practical aspect closely associated with the conditions of a 19th century battlefield. See, when the Civil War, Army, uh, Civil War armies, both Union and Confederate, tended to be organized as regiments from particular states. And soldiers tended to feel their first loyalty toward their regiment. Soldiers strongly believed they represented their home state or even their local region in the state. And much of the morale of Civil War units was focused on that pride. And a state regiment typically carried its own flag into battle. Soldiers took great pride in those flags. The regimental flags were always treated with great reverence. They were critical in Civil War battles as they marked the position of the regiment on the battlefield, which could often be a very confusing place. In the noise and smoke of the battle, regiments could become scattered. Vocal commands or even bugle calls could not be heard. And of course, armies at the time of the Civil War had no electronic means to communicate. So a visual rallying point was essential. And soldiers were trained to follow the flag. Because the regimental flags had genuine strategic importance in battle, designated teams of soldiers known as the color guard, not just what we would do at the Royals game, they would consist of two color bearers, one carrying the national flag, one carrying the regimental flag. And then two other soldiers were often assigned to guard those color bearers. Being a color bearer was considered a mark of great distinction and it required a soldier of extraordinary bravery. Because the job was to carry the flag where the regimental officers directed while unarmed and under fire. Most importantly, color bearers had to face the enemy and never break rank and run and retreat, or the entire regiment would follow. The regimental flags were so conspicuous in battle, they were often used as a target for the rifle and artillery fire. Of course, the mortality rate of color bearers was high. Histories of Civil War contain countless stories about regimental flags being protected in battle. Often the stories surrounded the flags uh, will recount how a color bearer was wounded or killed and other men would pick up that fallen flag. According to popular legend, eight men of the 64th New York Volunteer, Volunteer Infantry, part of the legendary Irish Brigade, were either wounded or, or killed carrying the regimental flag during the charge of the Sunken Road, one specific battle in Antietam, or portion of a battle in Antietam in September of 1862. 
As the Civil War con conclu uh, continued, regimental flags often became something of a scrapbook. The names of the battles fought by the regiment would be stitched onto the flags, and the flags became tattered in battle as they took on sign uh, deeper significance. The Lord has challenged Moses and Aaron, and he says, I'm going to build a memorial. The Lord is our banner. He is our rallying point. He is that which will never retreat. He is that which we will guard and we will fight for. That's what we do. So our last victory principle today, rally around the Lord, for he is our victory. You are not, gonna, you are not strong enough. You always have a weakness. That weakness is known by Satan. He will attack it. There is only one way to win this victory. And it's to rally around our banner, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Uh, you're good to us. And you, our, you are our victory. Thank you for that. Thank you that while we have to do our part, we have to, we have to participate and we have to pray and we have to support in the battle. There's no way we do it without you. There's no way we win the victory. Thank you for drawing the line in the sand with Amalek. You are a faithful and true God. We love you so much. Thank you for this message and what it meant to me personally. And just be with us as we part. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great day in the Lord.